I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. I'm David Moulton. I'm Scott Herzog. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. And this is also an episode of The Orbital Sword, which is our sci-fi and fantasy uh, podcast. So we're reading this uh, for that this month as well. So if you're listening over there, welcome to uh, what we also do for the Dune Saga podcast. And if you've never heard of The Orbital Sword, we hope that you come join us over there for general sci-fi and fantasy discussion. On this episode, though, we are reviewing Tales of Dune Extent, expanded edition, sorry, by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson. So this is a book that came out pretty close to when we had kind of wrapped production of of the main podcast, going through all the books, um, and it collects all of the all of the stuff that they put in magazines or were like uh, small short story handouts with uh, books as they released. Um, that kind of thing. I believe there's what eight eight stories here, nine stories. Um, so it's quite short, um, but it's just kind of a little nice little dip back in to Dune. Um, and these these are kind of separated. If you read the book, uh, you've got the Butlerian Jihad period, uh, the period of Dune proper, and then after the scattering, which is you know uh, towards the end of Frank Herbert's run and uh, beginning of like Sandworms of Dune and Hunters of Dune etc um so this is an interesting little look uh into that lots of little stories which we'll introduce as we go but uh maybe we can start off with uh first impressions what do you think here jim me i enjoyed it for the most part there were a couple of stories that were just kind of yeah but uh there there for the most part i kind of I, i enjoyed it how about you scott so you know, I really I listened to it. I listened to the audiobook. And I was like, this sounds so familiar. I know I've read these before. Um, now maybe not all the tales, um, but I really did enjoy, in general, um, most of the short stories. Um, you know, I mean, I imagine we'll get into how essential we think this these these stories are as far as in the into the greater storyline or if it really fills in anything or is it just more entertaining a little bit later but uh for what they were i enjoy in general i enjoyed the short stories and um and it was good overall yeah yeah i I agree it was it was a pleasant dip in It, it got me hungry to experience dune again now um, in two months when we do our next sci-fi book, we will be re-reviewing 
Dune proper, um, which is, right. uh, you know, the actual Dune book. And I, I, I'm very excited to do that. But this kind of got me, man, I kind of want to start over again, you know, right. just kind of. <laughs> Just kind of go through. David, are you saying that we are starting with the Butlerian Jihad and working our way forward again? Is that what you're saying? I mean, I mean, I might be. (laughs) Are we going to do a podcast on it? Because this sounds very familiar. Maybe if I can find two other guys who want to do a podcast about books. Yeah, I mean, but seriously, though, I mean, I was kind of like, it's. It, some of the stuff I was like, I really had to turn my memory to get myself into the time period, especially right. the Butlerian stuff, because it has been so long since we read that. And I mean, we were reading Dune every month for a couple of years there, and we were just in the world discussing it constantly. Right. And when you're doing that, like you can remember this stuff a lot quicker. Um, but it's been a couple of years since we've been heavily doing doing stuff so i would have been happy if all of these stories had been set in the butlerian jihad period myself <laughs> yeah yeah i agree I, or more I, like the scattering stuff would have been really great too it was the the dune era stuff that kind of lost me a little bit so the, these first three if you're a longtime listener of the show we did talk about the first three stories but we're going to go over them again they were covered in uh I believe the first one we're going to do was uh, just a short story we downloaded and read, and the other two, the the second and third story, were actually in the book Road to Dune uh, by Brian Herbert, and um, they were included in that. We talked about them there, but uh, we're going to start off in the Butlerian Jihad period with a story called Hunting Harkonnens. Before we we get into that, I do want to, you you said it made you want to go back and reread the Butlerian Jihad and move forward. so, like, on one side of me, if you were to say, David, hey, you know, let's do, maybe not as extensive as you did, but let's do a mini uh, kind of reflection and, like, do these again, I might mm-hmm. be up for it. But we'll talk after. After There's no promises. Um, but <laughs> this, this when, we, when we did read this series, it did make me want to go back and read Dune again, which I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know we're reading in two months, and I'll reread it again. Uh, I got sidetracked by the new Thrawn novel that Timothy Zahn put out. So, um, but I'll be back with Dune. It did like, just like you reading these short stories made me want to get back into the Dune universe. So from that end, this collection's successful, you know, it's kind of jogging my memory and making me remember characters that I haven't visited in a while. And it's making me want to visit them again. And, and maybe in that and maybe in that way this collection of tales has been successful yeah yeah see now as i read it um it 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 kind of felt like uh like an old friend visiting you know you know i mean that's where we started with dune however many years ago that's been now um <laughs> it's been a while i don't i can't yeah. i don't recall but um you know it was just kind of like hey you know here here we are to visit and then these characters and everything i was afraid i wouldn't remember anybody or or anything but uh it, it sure did it sure did give me some some flashbacks and uh remind me of things that i really enjoyed about reading the series the way we did 
Right. I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Good, good, good memories there. Um, so the first story we have here is called Hunter Hunting Harkonnens. Yes. And uh, it's set, I believe, between books two and three of the Legends series. And uh, we follow Pierce Harkonnen. Uh, I'm sorry. No, this would be a prequel to the to the original yeah it's a prequel to right. the whole series it's a yeah sorry to the butler and jihad uh, it follows Pierce Harkonnen along with his father um i can't quite remember his name off the top of my head Ulf. but oh Ulf, Ulf. yeah Katarina. and 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 his mother and they're they're going to uh Caladan i believe of all places and um on the way there they get attacked by om- ominous oh, ominous i get, i got to get these names right jeez Agamemnon and yeah, Agamemnon, Agamemnon and and his Simek army, uh, like a group of them attack, and they're just out for sport, uh, killing killing league members, and they kind of maroon on this planet, and uh, peers along with some of the native Caldan people, kind of booby trap and do some things to get the Simex destroyed and. Like Memnon leaves the only survivor of his his little thing, but as a result, uh, Ulf and, and his wife are are dead, and everyone considers Piers dead. He's on this primitive planet that doesn't have space travel. He he spends the rest of his life there, and his younger brother uh, Xavier is left with another family on Seleucus Secundus. And when we start reading the Butlerian Jihad. Uh, we are join we joins uh, Xavier already with that family and been there for a couple years and his right you know orphaned and and being raised by this this uh very nice family which it, it's funny because you see Ulf and and his wife they're they're, they're a typical Harkonnen like when you if you know Dune right. you know the Harkonnens are the bad guys and Piers is not that way and then because of the separation Xavier is raised. A hundred, you know, a full, you know, one eighty from from what the Harkonnens are normally. Well, and you right. kind of have to get used to that. Yeah, and oh, right. he he's out for profit. He's looking to make a profit. I didn't particularly see him as evil. Uh, you know, just he's he's out to make money and find right. find right. new commerce to open up. So, right, I think. The part that uh, for me that, that put him in the evil bucket is the the treatment of slaves and stuff. I think that was ah. a, a, the typical Harkonnen like classism yeah. that you you get in the later books, yeah. where they're just so rude and and crude. And of course, literally, he, he he makes them more and more visually disgusting to make up. You know, so they they actually look <laughs> like their character, <laughs> uh, their inner character, but. Um, at this point in time, they're just nobles that are just kind of brutal, yeah. brutal yeah. people. So what I, what I like about this story a lot is that it does give us this, uh, when we encounter the Butler and Jihad, um, Xavier's just staying with uh, this family, and we don't really know any backstory. So this fills in the gap and explains how he ended up in that family um, and, and tells a little bit about a brother that's been abandoned and and tells that story, but it, it does give a little bit of an explanation as far as 
filling in the gap. And not to mention, it's, you know, this whole like being hunted and trying to live is, it's kind of an interesting story in its own right, um, where Piers is trying to survive the, the Simek attack and, 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 you know, and the natives, the underdogs, you know, you kind of rising up victorious against these Simex. That technology yeah. can only take us so far. Then <laughs> you get a good introduction to the Simex uh, uh, and Ag- Agamemnon and how he is very much a victim of his own hubris. You know, mm-hmm. these, these half-man, half-machine beasts are foiled by extremely primitive people uh, when you would think that they would be more advanced than are above the type of traps that they lay for them. But they are not perfect beings, and they are not indestructible. Nope. They are still human, in a way. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. let's yeah. face it. The uh, tribesmen on Caladan, they, they are hunter-gatherers. Uh, they're very familiar with their own environment, and they use the environment as a weapon against Agamemnon and his legions. Yeah. And so yeah. it was completely unexpected because Agamemnon thought he going in, he had the upper hand. Uh, you know, he had the weapons, he had what he needed, but uh, he he underestimated the uh, ability of the Caladan tribesmen to uh, to use what they had at their disposal very effectively. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things I, I wonder, you know, so Piers Harkonnen, of course, is stranded on here and lives his life with his tribe. Um, it, it makes you wonder, because Kaladin plays such a major role into the uh, story of Dune, is if there are descendants of Piers that kind of play into the future of the Dune universe. Possibly. I don't know that we ever know. It's more. It's more. It's more of a, a theoretical, and it's certainly something I think that they uh, could explore in another short story because it's kind of an unanswered question. You strand a Harkin in here. Uh, does he remain single all his life, or does he is a does he get married? You know, inter- intermingle with the tribe. I mean, what what's going on here? So, I thought about that as well. It's hard to tell because at the end they do make it sound like he is fairly crippled by his experience. As to what extent, it's kind of hard to tell. But mm-hmm. he doesn't need to be crippled down there. I mean, just. Oh, is that a loot tune? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. oh, did he break out the loot for that? A little bit of romantic loot music and pure. Oh, I'm gonna, go. I'm gonna loot you. I'm gonna loot you for sure. So. <laughs> so all right, well, let's, I've been let's... looted by Jim. Yeah. Well, see, now, I wonder if the story's outcome wasn't the last, the very last part of it, where word reaches the family that Xavier is staying with what happened. And Xavier, and and it causes Xavier to decide that he was going to fight the machines when he was old enough. Right. Right. Yeah, it's basically them breaking the news to him and telling him that he was going to stay with them from now on, and he's like, "I'm going to get vengeance." And yeah, it does give um, him a reason to 
ha- be, be so angry at the machines, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was, a, it was a spark that, that lit the fire in him uh, and made him the great soldier that he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Very good. I like this story. Yeah, it's a good. It's a good one. A, I, I give this one a uh, four out of five. I liked it. I'm gonna go with that as well. Four out of five. Now, my question, or Jim, what, what did you give for this? Sorry, before I move on. Uh, this was, I think, my favorite story in the book. So okay. I'm gonna call it a five. Sweet deal. Ooh. Cool. All right. Well, where do you think? Or how how do you feel that this should have been or could have been worked in to do? Like to me, this is a great short short story and almost could have been the introduction in the book. Like you I was know, gonna say, th- this could have been this could have been like a prelude. Like at the very beginning of the book, you put this story in, and then you know, twenty years later, you know, yeah. something like that, and boom, we're in. Chapter I one. Forget, I, for, I forget in the Butlerian Jihad if they had some sort of prelude already. So maybe they right. went back and gave the history of, you know, why we're in this battle with the Cymax. And I forget. It's been too long since I've read the book. But this certainly would fit into, into, into there. So uh, just to give a little bit of uh, backstory into this specific small story. Uh, it looks like uh, Brian and Kevin were out doing uh, some book readings, and they found themselves stuck at a train station with a lot of extra time, and they were just brainstorming back and forth this this story, and uh, kind of like all, hacked it all out, and just passed their their computer back and forth, blocked out the details, and then uh, before you know it, they had this short story out that they you know it was kind of created the story while. Um, doing the press the press for the books. So this was written post um, The Butlerian Jihad, but as a nice little side story uh, mixed in there. I think this could have easily been a subplot that they mixed in to one of the later books, too. Um, you know, maybe they could have had peers come back in some way or an artifact or something, but at the same time, it, it doesn't really move anything forward on its own so it does well as as a short story mm-hmm. so all right it let's does. move on to I, our and next I, 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 i'm taking a real quick look at the butlerian jihad and they actually start with a short they tie it into paul as princess Irulan that's kind of giving like a little bit of backstory and it is kind of a recap of how man ended up into the thinking ma- machine system which we do need by the way um, but it really doesn't tell a story and like you could I'd probably throw it in there as like a second prelude if there is such a thing. But mm-hmm. So then our next story is also uh, within the Butlerian Jihad period um, and it is called Whipping Mech. Now this story, uh, it takes place between Butlerian Jihad and um, the Machine Crusade. There's a nearly quarter century gap between the two books and this falls right in there. Now, when this book, when this was released, it was released as um, promotional material for the machine crusade as a bonus CD uh, with uh, an audio version, or you could get a little pamphlet version of it when you pre-ordered the machine crusade uh, that tour books gave out. So 
Right. Uh, that's a little interesting thing there. So the whipping mech, this is a story. This one, for me, honestly, was the hardest one to remember characters. Um, because it's so mid-story and it barely has any of our our big leads in it um, at, at a pivotal time. We've got Virgil Harkonnen and um, uh, he's not a Harkonnen, I'm sorry, it's Virgil uh, oh, I can't remember what his last name is, but he's the son of the family that took in right. Xavier. Right. Uh, and he he's desperate to be a part of the Butlerian Jihad. Well, Xavier's this big, you know, he's Segundo, I believe, at this point. So he's, mm-hmm. I don't really know that's above general or what, but uh, right. Segundo, he's in charge of, like, uh, full operations. Uh, and meanwhile, Virgil's on Gidi Prime and, like, working with the division of the army that rebuilds the the um, planet after freeing it from the, the <clears throat> machines. Right. Uh, yeah, so Xavier comes back from a a loss, a great loss, and uh, Virgil wants to join up, and he he's he's upset with uh, Xavier for not for babying him, and he goes on a ship and he finds one of the mercenaries, which were kind of like the Guinez mercenaries, which are kind of like the pre swordmaster right kind kind of thing, and he discovers that there's uh, a, uh, one of them on there, which I can't remember his name. He was a was definitely a a main character in the in the books but i can't remember his name but he was a mercenary and uh he trained with a robot that they had retrained and it was very controversial and virgil insists on allowing being allowed to uh train with the the mech which does not have any type of security measures on it and uh it just becomes this big thing where he his eyes are opened to what fighting he wants to be a part of this battle to what the battle is like and how these uh machines are ruthless and have no mercy and uh, are nothing like what he anticipated and uh yeah so it's called the whipping mech because they it's this this mech whips the the guys into shape yeah are you done are you done talking yeah, I fell, I, I, fell, I fell asleep. I'm oh, just, just kidding. Come on. No, this, no, th- this is what I. But this is how I feel about this story. <laughs> like the, the, the story, like as far as like so in in hunting Harkonnen, you you have a real sense of these humans are in peril. They're being attacked by the Max. They, you know, it's a sacrifice and die, and they save the sun, and the sun crash lands, and he's, you know, going through the jungles to get away, and he's saved by these band and they encounter him again and they defeat them so like there's a very sense of very beginning and end but this story you know it's clear that yes he wants to go to war um and he wants to be like his older adoptive brother um and he gets in there and fights this machine and this machine shows him just an ounce of compassion which is a little bit confusing when you see uh, because they don't really explain why that is and we really don't see that. Like even with Erasmus, we really don't see that sort of compassion. Right. Um, and, and it's, it's just, it's weird. And then we get like, Oh, there'll be plenty of times to fight the machines later. Uh, it just didn't feel like for me, a cohesive story for myself as I look at it. Mm-hmm. The uh, warrior's name was Zan Noret. 
by the way. Yeah, Sonorek. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think this story would have been fine intermixed when we were reading through uh, the Butlerian Jihad storyline, the, the Legends of Dune storyline. But on its own like this, it, I agree with you. It wasn't very interesting. It didn't really add any excitement to my day or anything. I knew Virgil wasn't going to die. <laughs> you know, I I knew that the the mech wasn't going to wasn't going to come close to killing him since the mech is a prominent figure uh moving forward. So I I feel that this story specifically so far of the two we've gone over would have benefited reading chronologically and uh being taken out uh of time like that it just doesn't carry a lot of weight. Right. Mm. Right. No, I agree. Thoughts, Jim? Well, I kind of felt a little bit differently than you guys. I, I saw it more as kind of a parable um, mm. where uh, Xavier returns to Giddy Prime and he is just tired and he needs a break. So he goes, he goes to his brother's house and has dinner and then Virgil is like, tell me stories, tell me stories. So, you know, Xavier tells him stories and it's like it gets Virgil all fired up about wanting to be a part of this this war, and he comes upon this uh, training mech and <laughs> wants to fight it. And of course, the Ginaz trained guy he says, "Sure, go ahead. You know, uh, go ahead, take your shot." Well, you know, here Virgil he thinks he's all ready to to go out because you know. Uh, He's he's uh, Xavier's brother, and he's ready to go and and join the battle. But he finds out that he isn't ready. Um, the compassion thing, as far as I'm concerned, is the mech whipped him and whipped him easily. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and whipped him so easily there was no point in killing him. It's almost a Klingon thing, you know. Um, because mm. the mech was fighting an unworthy appoint, uh, opponent. Mm. Mm. So no, and you and, and and you know it's and I agree with you, and um, I do like the idea. It's easier to view it as like a parable, like you know, do not like do not think of war more beautiful than it actually is. You know, oh or, yeah, whatever the parable is. And well, I to- and, I, and I totally get that. We do. We this could have. E- we do that ourselves. You know, we we romanticize war uh, like crazy in all our movies and everything. And it's like you know, uh, you see John Wayne running down the hill with an M sixteen and two hand grenades, or or an M one or whatever he happens to be carrying, and and takes on an entire army and wins. I mean. You know, that's going to tell someone that, hey, you know, hey, war's easy. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, this story could have easily been told uh, by Virgil as a parody in one of the, either either this book or one of the later ones. And I think had more right. more prominence in, in the story if it had been included within the books. Um, I don't, personally, I want to give this the, one a three, three out of five. I was just going to say that one of the things that this book did do is... Reacqu- reacquaint me with flow metal. I totally forgotten about that existence. No. So. Mm. Anyways, you so get yeah. the three. 
Three, um, yeah. I was going to give it a two, but when Jim said parable and I saw it through that lens, I'm going to give it a three, two. Okay. Well, I, a three also. I thought it was a four. You know, it, okay. And I, I didn't see that it had a place in the main books. It was a side story that um, probably just wasn't really necessary to be in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the next one. It's called The Faces of a Martyr. And this one takes place between the Machine Crusade and the Butlerian Jihad. I'm sorry, Machine Crusade and the Battle of Korin. Um, this story, we see uh, Talaxu geneticists uh, by the name of Rekor Van, who barely escapes the purging of the Talaxu at the end of the Machine Crusade. I believe this was this one was really hard for me to, to remember what was taking place between the two books. And I, it was post uh, Xavier sacrificing himself to kill the, um, what's the, the, the like president? What's his name? Uh, Ginjo. Uh, oh, I forget. Ginjo. Yeah. Uh, and, and as a result there, he also had released all this information about the, the Tlaxu harvesting people and their organs and stuff and reusing them. Um, not quite exactly what the Tlaxu that we come to know later on. Um, so, uh, Van says, well, I've got all this, this technology and I have cells from Serena Butler I have nowhere to go, so I'm going to go to the to the machines and see if I can uh, barter my way with them. And uh, he offers to make clones of Serena for Erasmus, and um, yeah, like things do not go great. <laughs> so, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> to say the least, this one I could have sworn was actually in the books. And then the more I remembered about it, I don't know if this one has, I mean, it's a fine, but I don't know if this has a place in the books because I felt like they kind of cover, if I don't, I, when it, in, in the, in the main books in, in, um, uh, the battle of Koren, Erasmus talks like he's expecting a lot out of these clones of Serena. And he does allude to that. There was more, there was more of them. But I really feel like the one that's kind of the main one in the story, he's expecting a lot out of it like he's never been let down before. And in this story, we get a, he gets a clone of Serena that's just an utter and complete failure to him to the point where it's kind of shocking to me that a, that a uh, machine would have this uh, trait of insanity, <laughs> repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I did read this story before and I, I had, I had had this book. I must've purchased it after we were finished because I did, I had this entire collection. We went back through, so it was familiar to me and, um, it, 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 it's really this discussion of, you know, nature versus like, like nature versus nurture. Um, you know, what was innate, uh, in, um, in Serena and really, and then what is because of her environment. And it's clear that, 
that much of what made Serena the catalyst that she was for the Butlerian Jihad um, was really an environmental thing. And so removing all that and just raising her in a lab just didn't have, just didn't make her the same Serena that she was in the prior books. And so for me, it was just a, an exploration of those sort of ideas kind of played in and that, um, you weren't really cloning Serena. You were just using genetic material and creating another Serena, but it wasn't the same Serena because there was just the environmental factors were no longer there. Well, I mean, I think that is a clone, but what you mean, it's not a Gola. Yeah. Was what, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what'd you think of this one, Jim? Well, I, I'm more focused on Vorian Atreides, who is my, one of my all time, great heroes in, in the whole saga and how he was there witnessing uh Harkonnen's downfall Xavier's downfall um mm. you know because Iblis Ginjo who was dealing with Wrecker Van and the Thulaxa just put everything back on Xavier so Xavier was falsely accused of being part of this Thalaxu thing. And, you know, it's, uh, I guess, you know, not all things are what they seem. And Wrecker Van, he, right. he thought he was going to, he thought he was going to be a big hero uh, as far as Erasmus was concerned. And there was just no way uh, it was going to turn out good because, as Scott said, the environmental factors are not there to create another Serena Butler. As a matter of fact, she turned into a basically a seductive little tart, <laughs> and uh, which which angered Erasmus. And uh, when Wrecker Van became the subject of Erasmus's experiments, I felt very satisfied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I was very because because he was he was he was kind of a bastard. So I was totally good with that. So where would you put this uh, out of five? Oh, probably a three. Mm-hmm. Scott, yeah, three for me. Three for me too. You know, I'm gonna give it a four. I thought the story. Right. I mean, it, this uh, this one really made me want to read the books. Like I was like, oh. I want to continue this story, you know. I want to get to the point where Gilbertus Gilbertus uh, starts falling in love with the Serena clone, and you know that kind of stuff happens. So, mm-hmm. uh, I was interested to keep going, and I think that's good. So, the next story we have here is called Red Plague. Now, this one takes place between two of the school of dune books it takes place between mentats of dune and navigators of dune and here we see i believe if i remember correctly um the computer omnis has put out uh, viruses as part of his attacks and there's a planet that's got the red plague and they've been kind of cordoned off now this is a planet that had pledged itself to uh Manford's new Butlerian revolution, uh, where they're, they don't want anything to do 
with machines or technology whatsoever. So they're kind of against all modernism to a degree, uh, to the point where they are turning down medical help, uh, especially when it comes from what would become the spa- eventually the Spacing Guild. Uh, the gentleman by the name of, I don't remember his name, but, Venport. Uh, Venport. Yep. Aurelius Venport. Right. Yosef, Yosef yep. Venport. Yosef Venport. Sorry. Um, anyway, uh, that kind of is where we are with this one. It, I, I think this, I don't know. This one might be my favorite one of the series and not because it's particularly good, but because it brought up a lot of memories and of reading the school books, which are my favorite Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson series uh, of books in, in Dune. And uh, it just, you know, when uh, Venport <laughs> called him half Manford, I just, it like all of the fun of how upset Jim would get every time Manford was a part of the story <laughs> and how much he hated this character just came flooding back. And I was just like, I forgot how much we hated this guy, uh, how much, how much he really upset Jim every time his story like took a turn. Uh, you know, so I think for me, this one, I, I really enjoyed what was going on here. Mm. Yeah. So I, I, this one, what I liked about this one was, um, Especially its discussion of it's the age old, you know, extremists on both accounts, especially like I'm all for religion. Right. But when you, when religion becomes dogmatic and extremist and saying like, Oh, our faith alone will save us and heal us. This is what we get. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, let's throw away, any sort of medical help and advancements that could help save us and instead just rely on our faith. And, and this is a, this is a story really illustrating that kind of a parable of that for, for, for some, you know, the, maybe it's a story against the anti-vaxxers, right? Um, there's a sense that it does parallel some of what we see in our own world to a greater or lesser degree. And I'm not saying that all people are religious or that way. I'm just saying that, you know, you have, you certainly have, you, you certainly have those that, you know, won't take medicine or will sacrifice, you know, going to the doctor because they believe God will heal them. And it's kind of this, um, and I'm not saying there's not a place for faith, uh, but I am saying that, you know, here you see it, it's it taken to its max and just rejecting all sorts of medical help when it's quite a solvable problem, you know, and they would rather die than accept the the fact that it's solvable. So, mm. um, so I, I, I did like it from that. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that what more, I, I don't know that it's my favorite story, uh, but it was a good, it was, it was better than the whipping Mac story. Well, as soon as Manford got mentioned, I <laughs> my blood started to boil. Okay, uh, I don't like this guy. I I can't stand his hypocrisy. Uh, setting himself up as you know, saying that he can they're his people and he can do whatever they want with them. Of course, okay, so that's. You know, that's the way it has been. But when you throw Vanport in the mix on this, 
you see two sides of the same coin. <laughs> All right. Because Vanport is this, this uh, souk doctor comes to Vanport and says, I have a cure for this red plague. And Vanport says, so what? Nobody outside of Manford's people are affected by this. Let them die. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the souk doctor, he's very skilled at, at um, the art of persuasion, persuades Vanport that, hey, look, if you allow us to go in and cure your enemy, it is going to be a great public relations uh, victory for you. And Vanport says, oh, yeah. Well, then let's do it. And he doesn't right. he, he doesn't care any more for these people than than the man in the moon, right? And here's Manford mm-hmm. right. being offered a free cure to this and kills all the souk doctors. And so as far as I'm concerned, both of them are hypocrites. Well they are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. their 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 methods are 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 just different or and their reasoning is different and um yeah and you know you know who pays of course it's it's not manford and it's not venport who pay it's the people that work for them or the people that follow them are the ones that suffer uh for their stupidity so, uh, you know, and, and the other side of this is it, 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 ju- it brought this, um, COVID thing just right front and center in my mind, you know, how, wow, you know, imagine, imagine how bad this is and, yeah. and how bad it could be. Cause we're seeing it, you know, the, the, the story took on a whole different meaning for me. I'm going to call oh, it. No doubt. I'm going to. I agree. Yeah. And I'm going to call it a four. Not my favorite story, but, but it was up there, uh, exposing, exposing the hypocrisy on both sides. No, absolutely. And I would agree. I think that, I think the scoring for me would be probably, uh, um, 3.5. I'm not going to go three and I don't feel like I can go four, but I did enjoy this story a bit more. I am going to give it a four. I felt like, uh, I don't think it was the greatest story, but uh, man, (laughs) being reminded of how much Jim Jim gets upset by this guy (laughs) was just so much, it was so much fun for me. To, to not be the only one who rants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, what, what Jim wants to do is take his loot and beat it over his head. <laughs> no doubt. No yeah, doubt. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All righty. So the next book in, or the next uh, little story here, uh, and we're now into the Dune period. This is called Wedding Silk. This story was originally written to be part of the book Hall of Dune, which takes place directly after Dune. However, half the book is a flashback to Paul's younger years before leaving Caladan, and that's where this fits in. Uh, We follow a a story where his father was going to uh, look into becoming betrothed to uh, a lady of the court, 
and Paul and his mother come along. Uh, meanwhile, Duncan Idaho takes Paul uh, out into the woods with some of the uh, sword, some two other swordmasters, and they collect silk from a very dangerous worm and hawk uh, moth. Was it or hawk butterfly? Fa- falcon. Remember, falcon moth. It was a moth. Falcon moth. That's what it is. Yeah. And um, I apologize for getting that wrong. No worries. But um, yeah, it's just about collecting the silk and kind of. Uh, Paul showing his, uh, I don't know, abilities, I guess, or kind of, it's, this one was rough for me, I'll be honest. I didn't care (laughs) at all about what was going on. Um, I understand why it was cut out, because it just, it just, and I remember when we read Paul of Dune, which is a weaker book uh, in the series, we all kind of didn't, if I remember correctly, didn't really think that the story part that was in the past was really all that spectacular. That's mm. right. That that book jumped back and forth, didn't it? Yeah, it was like every other chapter or something. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is sad because you would think that with Paul you could do something like that and like tell a rich, deep story. And you know, of you know, what's more quintessential to the Dune universe and Paul Atreides? Um, but here we are, and uh, and once again, even the short story, you're saying it feels lackluster. It wasn't that. I mean, it was neat to see Duncan Idaho back in the screen because we this is our first story with Duncan Idaho, right? Um, and to have Paul, but it just uh, it didn't. I don't know. It was like the 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 tail on the kite just you know wasn't enough for the kite. I, I was something like that. Hmm. Yep. I I this story was meh to me. I mean, so what? Um I, you know, okay, fine. We got to see Duncan Idaho again, whoopee doo. But I'll tell you what, one thing I do enjoy is the different personalities of the Ginaz masters, yeah. know, Blood and Dinari and and their interactions uh, you know, for that reason, I stuck with the story. But as far as Paul and the stupid silk and all this other crap, I I didn't uh, I didn't think it was all that great. Uh, I'm I'm no. gonna hang a two on it. Mm. I'm with you. I agree. I'll give two it a me. two. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a two. Now, Blood and Denari, they were both in the Houses of Dune trilogy were they oh. not they were part of the oh yeah uh yeah uh, that entire Ginaz training uh stuff in that out, throughout that book was was absolutely fascinating the, you know the way the way all these guys have their different personalities and and uh their little idiosyncrasies and and you know how they managed to get the job done was beyond me but they did they were fascinating. The rest of it, uh, yeah, you know, whatever. But <laughs> right. Well, moving on to the to the next book, it's called "A Whisper of Caladan Seas." Um, this story is a side story that takes place during the beginning of Dune. Uh, right. Like right. Well, I guess not the beginning. Is it about a quarter of the way, midway through? When the Harkonnens and Carinos uh, attack 
and uh, kill Duke Leto. This story follows a group of Caladan soldiers on Arrakis uh, during the battle and the confusion of what's going on. They're not sure if the Duke got out safe or, or you know, how uh, how did the Harkonnens get through um, the ranks? And they think they see Sardaukar in, in their ranks, the people fighting like Sardaukar. And then they go into a cave and there's a cave in and they're stuck in the shield wall. Right. And basically it's what I, I liked about this is it features a jungalore, uh, which right. we ha- hadn't heard about really since if I recall, I don't remember if they were in the house books, but they were definitely in the, the legends books. And, Oh yeah. And it, it's basically these art, these artisans that, are so skilled in telling stories and stuff that it's almost hypnotic and people can get lost in their right. tales. Um, right. Yeah. So it's kind of right. about them dying in this cave really. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm re as I mentioned earlier, I'm rereading Dune and it's easy to see where this story fit. Um, Cause they, re- they reference soldiers, Harkonnen soldiers, not Harkonnen, Atreides soldiers being trapped um, and them not rescuing them. Um, and so that, so it's easy to see where this fits. Um, I really, uh, it's a, it's really, it's a really sad story. Um, but it's beautiful at the same time. And I think like the the jungler and the jungler and the, um, and the story that he tells and, and the, and then the fact that, you know, they talk about them being there and the and then them and then the course the Fremen finding him later drowned and how they won't touch him. It's just it's just uh it's a beautiful in a sense homage to the the the, the foot soldiers that that fought in this invasion. And and it, and for me, I really I was really moved by this story. Not because there was some great, you know, beginning middle and end plot type thing but because of the 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 humanity if you can call it that of these soldiers and what they were dealing with and the lack of hope what do you think jim uh meh rubbish one (laughs) that's all i'm gonna say about it it was way too damn much hocus pocus for me Wow. Hey, you want my rating on it? This one gets a 4.5. Yeah, I was I'll give this one a 4.5. Jim's giving it a 1. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it didn't it didn't move me at all. Okay. Do you know what would have made this story a 5 for me, David? What's that? If the jungler would have whipped out a loot and the jungler's name was Jim, I would have been there. Totally it's actually the the story of Jim. Right. You know. I like it. I love it. I want some more of it. (laughs) (laughs) Moving right along. We'll move on to the next book. It's called Sea Child. This book was written uh, as a... uh, It was written for the Tsunami Relief Anthology called Elemental. So it was to raise funds for charity. It takes place during Chapter House Dune. Um, here we follow, I believe it's Sister Corista, as she takes in a 
what is the name of these creatures? Um, she takes in this like water, a buzzle. No, she's she's on buzzle, and she takes care of a creature that the uh, honored it's major is like a Phibian child. They call them Phibians. Yeah, Fibian. yeah, yeah. That's it. And it's uh, she takes in a, a wounded child that's been rejected by the Phibians, and they're like half man. They're mer people, basically that the honored honored matres have like genetically made, and uh, she takes it in and nurtures it back. And this is after she's dealing with her own child being taken away by the sisterhood, um, which is uh, normally they're not allowed to, to form relationships with their children, and uh, she thinks that. She's going to be greatly punished for this, and that when she releases the child back, the amphibians are all, are going to just kill it, basically. And uh, it turns out to be quite the opposite. The amphibians welcome the child back into their into their group, and if I remember correctly, I think in follow up stories, this is like kind of a thing that happens where the the child is now more of an adolescent and helps her out in some way. I can't remember exactly how, but. Either he brings her some of the the uh, ruples or whatever it is that, that are in the in the water, and uh, or something like that. I can't remember. Am, am I am I remembering that correctly? Do you do you guys ring a bell about that? I don't remember that, but um, yeah, I don't I don't remember that that of that happening in the future. But you know, this is certainly um, another story that I was intent that I was incredibly moved by, and you certainly feel this woman's pain of having a child taken from her and, and raising it. And it, you know, it speaks not only to the, uh, the honor matras, but then also even, even the sisterhood did similar stuff, the Bene Gesserit in the past. And so it was, um, it was just, uh, and the fact that she raised this child and made it her own and, you know, made toys for it. Um, and then she still refuses to bend you know, and giving up the location of uh, the Bene Gesserit homeworld. And, uh, but the Phibian child is kind of welcomed into the, into the sea of its own kind. And I, for me, this is just a, certainly, does this story need to be in the universe? Absolutely not. Like, you, there's nothing that this adds, fleshes out, or makes you wonder more, at least not for me. But I thought that this was a beautiful story nonetheless. Jim? Meh, I'll give it a two. <laughs> uh, I, you know, and you know, Scott, I I am I'm glad you got something out of out of this story in the last one. I mean, I it it didn't do a thing for me. Right. So, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm not See, if saying I, if I were to rate it Go ahead. I'm not saying you're wrong by any stretch and i might i maybe i'll go back and read these two stories again and see if i can see what you saw in them but for me it just oh well it's there okay so like i i, 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 get, I get that jim um because i think if you look at this story and say this is part of the dune universe uh, you know, yes, because there are like the Honor Matras and there's Bene Gesserit, but you could swap those names out with anyone and it would still be a good story. Like this is not a necessary, this is not a necessary, um, 
this is not necessarily a Dune story. It's a, it's a, it's a human story of someone taking in an immigrant or someone taking in a foreigner and someone who's ah. been rejected. And it's, 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 it's the same type of story that, that you could put in any situation and it would still, we'll see, you know, it still kind of yanks at your heartstrings. And, and so for me, like, I get what you, I get what you're saying. If you're looking at it saying this is a Dune story, I'm like, well, yes, sort of. But I look at it and say this is a good human story. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You're taking in the person rejected, raising him up, and then this rejected person finds acceptance. You know, who doesn't want to hear that sort of story from me? Yeah. Well, see, and then as you say, it's under the Dune banner, right? So, you know, I, I would, but I'm using I, that maybe as a measuring stick. Yeah. But that, but then again, you know, you look at what David said at the beginning, why they wrote this for the, the, the uh, relief efforts um, in the, in the atrocity that happened, you know, you, this is meant to be a story that it kind of pulls your heartstrings. They want to raise funds for these sort of efforts. So one of, one and of they were the targeting their, Okay, Go ahead. but one of the hallmarks of the Dune stories, I mean, all of them, is that they are about humans. And now we have introduced another species. Well, that other species is in the other books, too. Right, right. We, we encounter them early on don't we encounter them we'll in, see like, that that's in, how memorable uh, they are god emperor <laughs> yeah they care yeah you early on with the honored matrix they, they are introduced but they aren't focused on very heavily they're not i mean right they're no different than the talaxu or the um or the navigators they're just mutated humans yeah. right. they're not aliens yeah you know right yeah well, David, what did you rate it? Um, uh, I give it a three. I thought it was. I thought it was. It was good. I thought it, it, it. You know, it was fine for what it was. I thought it. It. You know, I, like I mentioned, that it was going to. That it connected a little bit more, but I could be wrong about that. So, um, not really sure in that scenario. But uh, yeah, I'll give it a solid three. So, all right, we have one more story to talk about in this book. Treasure in the Sand. This story takes place post-Chapter House uh, uh, Dune, and uh, it's after the Honored Matries have devastated Dune and turned it into a barren wasteland where supposedly nothing exists. Now, Chom sends down an expeditionary force uh to Rackus, which is what they're calling Arrakis now to see if they can find any treasures or artifacts uh from the society that used to live there and uh they've got general mercenary contractor mercenary is the wrong word uh general contractor treasure hunter people as well as a priest that they send down and of course they find a couple things here and there but nothing of real value uh the weird, the the real thing here is that that the priest keeps noticing that not everything is gone. That there's there's water on Arrakis. There's water in the air. There's water, you know, coming in through the ceilings of the caves. There's uh, little Moadibs running around all over the place. Uh, so life is not completely 
gone from the planet, which means something must be up here. All that said, they can't find any real treasure, and their time is up. Right. And at the last minute, Chom's like, the priest found treasure, and it was right in front of you the whole time. What was that treasure? Sand. Yes. The sand from Arrakis. It, because at this point, there is a, several different sects of the cult of the divided god uh, out there worshiping uh, Leto or Shihalud or or whatever you want to, whatever their choice was, you know, the golden path and all these different angles on basically the same thing, making Arrakis a place where people used to take a pil- pilgrimage to. Here they have an opportunity to sell sand from Arrakis for a lot of money, little vials of it. And the rich will pay for it uh, because it'll be such an elite thing, which is utterly ridiculous. But at the same time, exactly what you would expect from like when you mix business and religion and it's exactly what you expect i this was i'm not going to say it's the greatest story ever told i'm not going to say it's the greatest dune story even in the book but this was my number one story in this book because it was quintessential frank herbert philosophy where he was, you know, constantly writing about the manipulation of religion and business, government, that type of thing. And right here, it all comes full circle with them saying, hey, even even the priest who you would think would be more devout in this situation is like, no, we can sell this and make money for the church, you know, just right. in general. And, and, I, and to me, I was like, that little tidbit is very Frank Herbert. Yes. I agree. This is one of my favorite stories in the book as well. Um, I, you know, from the end, like I, I've always loved stories of people like exploring and finding ancient civilizations. So you certainly have this sort of framework here, and a little bit of mysticism. Then the priest does seem to see stuff that the others can't. Um, but then the turning of it to profit is is also kind of an interesting twist. And so I did, it wasn't my favorite story in the book. I, you know, Hunting Harkonnens probably has to still be my, one of my favorite stories in the book, but this is up there. Like I, I did enjoy this story. I enjoyed going back to Arrakis after it's been destroyed. And this is like an expedition that I would have liked to be on, you know? Yeah. Jim, you sure you want me to say it? <laughs> he, he gave this one a one. No. Oh, one half. <laughs> oh my word! Uh, yeah. Wow. I I. It was like I didn't care. Um. <laughs> it. I mean, you know, the ending was was what I expected it to be. Sand, right? We're gonna sell this stuff to the true believers, and you know, it's just same crap that goes on all the time snake oil salesman uh you know dressed up <laughs> dressed up as a religious person and it's like get out of here i, I don't even i don't even want to mm-hmm. know about this yeah. so one half a star wow i'm wow. going five okay. that's the lowest i think that's a that's the lowest rating jim's ever gave but what'd wow. you say dave i'm gonna go with five just because like i said it was so 
It was so Frank Herbert that I was I was honestly bored the whole way through. Honestly. But that ending was so Frank philosophy. <laughs> I don't know yes. how to put it. It's just what I love about Dune was just like pointing that stuff out and and real eye opener for me when I was at the right age that he kinda like hit me with that stuff and and uh I just love seeing it again. You know, I mean I know this is not written by him, but it's just uh, we don't, we read a lot of books and we don't, you know, that's one of the things I love about Dune and, and we don't get that in a lot of other books. So mm. yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, uh, for me, I gave it a four. All righty. All righty. Yeah. Well, that, that wraps us up on reviewing each individual book. Uh, I did not write down our reviews to put a, <laughs> to, to put a full number at the end. I, I'll hopefully do that uh, at a later date. Uh, maybe yes. on the website, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I can so, try to jot them down. When I, I can probably try to jot them down as I'm listing and editing. So we'll see. Awesome, that'd be very helpful. I do have so, some bad reviews if you want to hear them. Oh please, please <laughs> give us some bad reviews. Yeah. So remember, we used to do the bad reviews when we did the new books. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is this one is a two star by MM Strawberry Library Reviews. All right. As a collection of short stories, this is far from the worst thing that Brian and Kevin have written. But Frank Herbert didn't write these stories, so ultimately, this isn't really worth reading. If Brian and Kevin showed more respect for the Dune verse instead of stomping all over it like they have been doing, particularly with hunters and sandworms and the heroes of Dune books, then perhaps their crap might be more worthy of reading. But it's not, so just stick with Frank Herbert's Dune novels and the Dune Encyclopedia that Frank Herbert himself approved of. Two stars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we face this all the time. People don't like yep. Brian and Kevin's stuff. That's whatever. But that's like saying, uh, yep. you know, Frank put a stamp on David Lynch's Dune for some ridiculous reason. Should right. we take that as? Should we take that as like gospel? <laughs> so <laughs> like, I hate that movie. I have one more two star, and then I actually have a five star I want to read just to kind of balance it out. Okay. This is by Ryan Ulrich, rated it a two-star. I have an incredible love for the Dune universe and have read every book in the series, most more than once. This collection of short stories, most of which seem to be chapters that were cut from Dune novels, are regrettably uninspired and forgettable. You know, I agree with him in this end. You don't need to read this. You're not gonna. No, you're not you really gaining or losing anything. So, no. But fleshes out a little bit and gives us a little bit here and there, and I like it. Anyways, uh, Joe Pr uh, Pranatus uh, rated it a five stars out of five. And he wrote, authors Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson bring us back to the Dune universe with this anthology and expansion of their original Tales of Dune ebook, which has some stories that this one does not. But about this one, it's set up in a period order from the Legends era where we met Xavier Harkonnen's father and brother as they are ambushed by Cymex above the future home of the Atreides to the period after the scattering, a time where scavengers come back to the glass dune in order to look for treasures of the God Emperor. The last story sets up the last two books in the Dune Saga Hunters and Sandworms of Dune. It's a great book, and I highly recommend it to all Dune fans. Pick up the ebook version of the original tales as well. So, hmm. yep. Well, all right. there, there you have it. That was a, a a deep dive into the tales of Dune. Uh, 
glad everyone came back and joined us for that. Yeah. This is not, I mean, Dune's, Dune's back. It's back. It's not coming back. It's back. Um, um, right. You know, we've been putting out some little snips of, you know, news and stuff here and there every couple months, but uh, we're going to put out a little, a short little review of the first trailer coming out here. Uh, we're also going to be rereading Dune to uh, just kind of look a nicer review. And then coming up in December, we're going to be reviewing Caladan or Duke of Caladan. Is that what it's called? Duke. Yeah. Duke, Duke of Caladan. Yeah. It's the, it's the newest book, which takes place is the number one in a trilogy uh, that take place one year before Dune. Uh, And uh, it's going to, the first one's called Duke of Caladan. So, we're going to be looking into that. Uh, we're a little bit rusty <laughs> on our Dune knowledge, but it's going to ca- start flowing back. Don't worry. Uh, right. We're we're still here. We're still doing our thing. Uh, if you enjoy our conversations, um, we do have another podcast called The Orbital Sword, uh, where we review fantasy and sci-fi books uh, about monthly, and it, we alternate back and forth between uh, fantasy and sci-fi, so... Uh, you can read along with us and maybe take in a, a, a new type of genre that you're not into if you're not into one and you like the other or vice versa. So we'd hope you join us for that. So once again, for the Dune Saga podcast, I'm David Moulton. I'm Scott Herzog. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. And may Shai Halud clear the path before you.